Hey everybody, it's Allie, and welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, August 31st, 2014. It's been a, a weird and wild week in YNR with emphasis on the weird part. <laughs> Just really, really weird. <laughs> The week starts out with Sharon and her house with Nick. He's just come back from learning the truth about Mariah. Sharon is insisting, I never want to see that woman again. And Nick tells her, no, no, see, you, you don't know who she really is, Sharon. She's your daughter. <laughs> it was classic soap revelation moment lord i i loved it honestly i was engaged and i felt like you know what kudos to ynr for making this happen that's just my opinion i wanted cameron grimes back on the show i had speculated about how so many things in genoa city would have gone differently if not for cassie's death and ynr did find a creative way to bring a version of cassie or at least cameron grimes back on the show and although it's been uh, a lot of turmoil <laughs> so far. I think in the in the long run, it's going to have some pretty awesome implications for the show. I, there are a million different directions this could go. Uh, Sharon and Mariah could become bonded. They could become enemies. How does Nick play into all of this? How is the revelation of Sharon's secret going to play into all of this? So I think it's got a lot of really cool potential potential. Now, it's only in Soapland <laughs> that Sharon wouldn't have realized the whole twin thing already. Okay, I can buy that she and her mother were very poor. They didn't have enough money for medical attention, so she wouldn't necessarily know that she was carrying twins. That I buy. It's just crazy to me that the moment Mariah showed up in town and had like Cassie's exact face that it wouldn't have occurred to Sharon. I only accepted it because I know I'm watching a soap and the twin thing is a leap of faith that we take as soap viewers quite regularly. So I, I, I didn't necessarily put together the pieces that it was going to be a twin thing, but now here we are. <laughs> Officially, Mariah is Cassie's twin. Uh, Nick is telling Sharon that she has this daughter. He tells her everything, and it's starting to click with me. It kind of makes sense why Ian wanted the baby when he couldn't have one of his own. And it also makes sense why Ian was pushing Mariah for all of these weeks to get close to Sharon, to, to move in with her and to try to become her confidant. Some of that is, is starting to uh, ring true. I, I loved seeing Sharon's reaction to all of this. She was shocked. I mean, of course, at first she didn't believe it, but it started to click with her and she felt, I think, guilty right away, right off the bat that she didn't know. And that carried through for the rest of the week. It was really interesting to see her reaction. And I'm glad that she had Nick there 
for her. They eventually both had to go on and tell the rest of the family. Sharon tells Noah, Mariah is his sister. <laughs> After that rivalry, uh, it's that's going to be shocking. It'll be funny to see them come face to face for the first time and see how Noah actually reacts. Is he going to give Mariah the benefit of the doubt because she's his sister or is he going to kind of go on and, and decide to continue the rivalry? Interestingly, too, Nick goes up to the main house and tells Nikki and Victor about this news. And this is a connection that I didn't make. Nikki totally understood what Sharon must be going through. She immediately became empathetic towards Sharon and said, I had no idea that I had another child too. So I can understand what Sharon must be going through finding out uh, after the fact that she, she have, has had this child out there all along. And I, I will say throughout the course of the week, I felt very impressed with how supportive Nikki was being of Sharon. In fact, she was flying in the face of Victor's uh, staunchness toward uh, the being in the I hate Sharon camp or Sharon crossed me camp. Uh, Nikki challenged him and said, you know, you did that. You brought Mariah into the picture and you used her own daughter to, to taunt her. And Nikki really shined a light on what Victor's role in all of this was. And I did appreciate that. I appreciated Nikki's sensitivity toward all of this. Now, Everyone is looking for Ian. Mariah has gone missing. Oh, Lord. Ian is, uh, he's got her. He calls Sharon and says, oh, if, you know, you figured out that Mariah is your daughter by now. How great for you. I've got her and you're not going to get her unless you do exactly what I say. I'll call you later with instructions. So everyone is freaking out. Where is Ian? Where has he taken Mariah? And it turns out he's taken her. Ugh. Ugh. to this storage space, okay? He's got this empty storage space, and uh, she follows him blindly. I assume in much the way that she has followed him throughout her entire life, and they're, Ian and Mariah are alone in this storage room together. <sighs> he makes it seem like it's kind of, you know, you know, re relax. Mariah has just had this falling out with Sharon. She doesn't, and I guess it makes sense because Mariah feels like she doesn't have anyone. She was starting to get close to Sharon and then Sharon blew up at her because of the Nick thing. Mariah was completely convinced that she had a connection with Nick. Of course, she's misinterpreting a, a connection. I think there was a connection there, but it was a fatherly, daughterly kind of connection. And and Mariah thought it was of a sexual nature. And so now she's been, she's isolated Nick, uh, uh, she, she's been isolated by and has isolated Nick and Sharon from her life. Ian's really the only person that she has. So she follows him blindly to the storage <laughs> space. Let that be a lesson to you kids. Don't follow a cult leader into an empty storage locker. <laughs> it's not going to turn out well for you. It's not going to be in your your best interest. He starts telling her to relax. Ugh, ugh. It was so rapey. He fills her glass with wine 
and is staring at her creepily the entire time. Just, yes, drink that. Go ahead, drink that glass of wine. I mean, if someone pours you a glass of wine and then stares at you creepily as if they want you to drink it, I think it might be an indication that something nefarious is going to happen. It's become increasingly difficult to like the character of Ian Ward after this week, but is, it, is the actor great or what? I just think he's fantastic. The way he was staring at her, leering at her, the way he delivers a character that is unlikable, is wholly and completely unlikable, and makes you not 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 like him, but just appreciate the situation, appreciate the drama. I think that's something uh, to be noted. And it, it's, if you've ever seen Twin Peaks, it's very similar to the type of character he played there. Just an amazing performance. And it can't be easy to play someone who is just so awful, but he does it. And it, 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 it gets worse. <laughs> it gets so much worse. <sighs> Mariah ugh, wakes. Uh, she's she's been drugged. She she drinks so much wine, and he puts something in it, and she passes out. She goes to sleep. She wakes up and realizes that she's in a wedding dress. Uh, a full wedding dress. Uh, uh, the gown. The head. The veil thing. It's only those two in the storage locker. So, ugh. I, the, the part that we didn't see was where Ian undresses her out of whatever she was wearing. Ugh. Ugh. And then puts her into this gown, which he has obviously procured before now. <laughs> so he, go, he must have gone out and selected this gown for her. Ugh. God. He puts it on her. She wakes up, realizes what's going on, is mortified. And Ian is perfectly happy with how this plan is going. Everything's going just fine. He calls Sharon and, of course, begins to taunt her. Mariah's, like, still out of it, not really knowing what's going on. Uh, he tells Sharon that if... She wants Mariah back. She's going to have to pay, of course. We know he's been after money since the minute he walked into town, but it was actually a pretty huge payload. He said uh, he wants a million dollars for every year of Mariah's life, so we must be talking $20 million. That's a lot. Sharon's like, I don't have that kind of cash. And he says, well, uh, you can do 5000 now. We can put you on a payment plan. <laughs> A ransom payment plan. Five million now. Did I say thousand? Five million now, and then uh, you can wire the rest to me later. I want you to take the five million. This is dumb. Put it in a, 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 a what he said, a sack or something, and put it into a trash can at Chancellor Park. He wants Sharon to make the drop to go put cash. <laughs> Because I'm sure it's got to be cash, because I doubt she's going to go have time to go get a cashier's check. Uh, puts it into a trash can at Chancellor Park, uh, and that's how he's going to get his money. 
Meanwhile, uh, they've um, Sharon and Nick have already alerted the cops. Detective Harding is there with another one of the female police officers, and they're trying to trace this phone call to find out where Ian Ward is. And they take ransoms very seriously or hostage situations. And uh, Detective Harding... He really wants to do things by the book. He'd be a good district attorney, but he's a, a good equivalent of a district attorney in the police station. He's very, by the law, he, uh, Sharon and Nick, of course, want to just give him the money. Sharon's like, I don't, you know, I don't care. I'll just give him the money. I want my daughter now. And Harding insists that they need to use a decoy to do the drop, meaning someone who looks like Sharon. Uh, they don't want Sharon and Nick. They don't want civilians just going into this dangerous situation. Uh, so I thought I thought it was interesting that just Harding's place in all of that, they weren't able to trace the call. All they could tell that is that that Ian was in a 20 mile radius of Genoa City. Big deal. Um, Mariah starts to come too. And is like really coming to the realization of what's going on. Uh, there's this uh, peon, a, a associate of Ian's, and he comes by. Mariah recognizes him, is still confused about what's happening, and ugh, Ian reveals ugh, that she's going to be married today. Ugh. And she's going to be married um, to someone who she loves very deeply, someone who's known her forever. The husband she's going to be marrying today will be him. Ugh! <laughs> she's looked at him as a father figure. He's said on multiple occasions that he was like a father figure to Mariah. And... Now he wants to marry her, and not only that, but he implied that he's been planning this for a while. I don't know if you guys got that impression, but I got the impression that, just from things that Ian said, that this is, like, part of his long-term plan? Because he kidnapped the... He knew that it was Sharon's baby. He had to have known that... Well, he couldn't have known that Sharon would end up being connected to the Newmans. So I guess it's not part of his long-term plan. I don't know. It was just weird that he's insisted that he's like a father to her all of these months that we've known her and him, and now all of a sudden he wants to marry her. It's just gross, gross, gross. <laughs> I love the actor, but this character is foul. Foul. It's just bleh. He forces her to marry him. I, she's trying to get out of it. Like, no. I mean, the look on her face was so horrified. She's trying to get out of it. You know, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. And he's manipulating her both mentally and physically. He pulls her in real close and tells her, what have I taught you? You know, you, you, this is part of our path and don't diverge from the path. So there's a uh, a, a mental manipulation, a brainwash element, but also he was like physically forcing her to do it. It, it was so awful. He even forces her to sign the marriage license to make it official. I, I don't understand. What on earth could he be hoping to gain from this part? Okay, you want to kidnap her and get the ransom money. That part I can kind of understand. What are you going to gain from 
forcing her to marry you. Uh, she could just turn around and divorce him. She could easily get it annulled as soon as she gets rescued. He has to know that, that if he's going to return, I don't get it. I don't get it. What could he be thinking? If he's going to return her to Nick and Sharon, why would he want to be married to her if he is he gonna run away is he gonna stay in town i i just do you guys have any insight on what this sick crazy twisted lunatic is actually planning with the marriage part it just it drives me nuts unless uh, mariah is completely brainwashed and will insist on staying married to him because he's her husband and he's ian it, it, then that would give him a reason to stay in Genoa City and give him a reason to stay in their lives. Is that's all I can come up with? Cause it's it's so beyond me. Ugh. So after Ian's married, part this part of the plan just went smashingly. He decides uh, it's time to go. You know, go leave Mariah alone with his uh, cohort, and it's I guess time for the uh, money drop um, uh, at the police station. The police are preparing for that. Courtney is the decoy. She uh, did end up having a conversation with Noah where she learned that Mariah is Noah's sister now. And uh, I, I didn't think about it before, but I kind of, as soon as I saw Courtney standing there getting ready to be the decoy, I thought, oh, okay, that makes complete sense. I don't know if the money drop, is that even still going to happen? Because Nick and Sharon are able to trace down the exact storage locker that this cohort has rented in Genoa City on Ian's behalf. So Nick and Sharon find out exactly where the storage unit is and they go there <laughs> rescue Mariah all on her own. I mean, Nick flips open the storage locker door and Mariah's in there kind of like still woozy and like, what just happened to me? And the cohort guy is standing there and they just both rush in and Nick's ready to kill the guy with a crowbar and Sharon just wants to embrace Mariah. And then the cops come in right behind Nick and Sharon. Like, didn't anyone learn the lesson from Dylan about interfering with police business? I mean, Shoot, it's a good thing that that Paul wasn't there or he could have ended up shot in this whole situation. No one in everyone in Genoa City goes to the cops for help, but they never let the cops just do their job. They have I mean, the, especially if your last name is Newman, I think you need to just do it. <laughs> you need to just take the matter into your own hands. So Mariah has been rescued. The cohort guy is is apprehended. Um, and now everyone is just wondering, where is Ian? <laughs> and guess where he goes? <laughs> to see Nikki. He's not done with his reign of terror. Oh, no. It's time to go see Nikki. And Nikki has just been to a meeting. She's off the damn wagon and she's, I think, trying to be strong but feeling very weak. And I don't know exactly. That was kind of where it left off on Friday. I don't know exactly what Ian is going to say to her or do to her. I'm sure it's going to push her off the wagon even further as if that's possible. It's so crazy. This character is just bad to the bone, but he's really, he's just got to be one of the best villains ever in daytime. It's so 
it's just so bad it's good that's the only way i know to describe it and again don't misunderstand me i don't like love the the what he's doing i just find it's so it's shocking it's got my attention and i get the impression that that's kind of how everybody feels it's good writing it's good acting so it's just it's a a, a wonderful little uh whirlpool of crazy daytime drama. I'm loving it. I think it's, I, 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 there is still a part of me that just likes having a good villain on the show. I think Ian fits that bill. It's too bad that he is either going to go to jail for a very long time or he's going to die at the hands of any number of our Genoa City residents. I'm kind of wondering if maybe he'll be shot by Nikki, pummeled by Nick and Dylan, stabbed by Mariah, and then burned alive by Sharon all at the same time. Jack and Kelly stop by Neil's apartment. They come in with flowers and happiness. No idea that he's gone blind. It's not public knowledge yet. Uh, it was very, very awkward. Um, Lily's there with Neil, and they have to break the news to Jack. I mean, Jack's also, he, he comes in the door with work papers for Neil to look at, and Neil has to be like, I can't see the work papers. I can't see it all. Christoph St. John is doing a really good job with this ridiculous storyline. While that's going on, Hillary uh, goes to see Devon yet again. She can't stay away from him. And she, yeah, it's, uh, she's talking out of both sides of her mouth because she goes to see Devon and tells him, maybe we should just ignore this, this thing that we're feeling for one another, and it'll go away. Well, it's not going to go away if you're constantly going to see him. Why are you lying? You were making an excuse to go to see him. And they have this heart-to-heart -heart moment where I was happy to see Devon finally starting to talk to Hillary about his own guilt. I mean, they both feel guilty, and Hillary's guilt has been really obvious over the past couple of weeks, especially, you know, since the accident especially. But Devon finally started talking about, you know, I don't really like this either. I don't like, I want to be with you, but I don't like that I'm having to betray my father. And I liked that moment because... Really, they both owe a lot to Neil. I never thought about it this way before, but Neil is someone who gave both Devon and Hillary a second chance when no one else would. Um, Neil took in Devon into his family, into his heart, and gave him a life that he never could have dreamed of. Hillary was a complete pariah in Genoa City, and when no one else wanted to forgive her or give her an in at all, Neil embraced her and gave her a job and married her. So there's enough guilt to go around. Uh, they, they, you know, acknowledge it and then go off to the apartment to see Neil, both of them. I mean, Devon, he needs to stop hanging around so much, but he, he has to follow Hillary everywhere she goes. He follows Hillary to the apartment where Jack and Kelly and Lily are all there with Neil. Um, they're, you know, getting ready to have dinner and just kind of have some social time. Jack is still there, and Neil's remarking about how his other senses are really keen. 
<laughs> now that he can't see, oh, he is just hearing tones in people's voice that he never heard before. He is just, he's, his, all of his senses are firing. It's so, it's so smulty and so obvious. This is, it's just every, it's, it's like right out of the daytime playbook. <laughs> Everything about this, it's so over the top. Well, the thing that caught my eye was that Jack noticed something was going on between Devon and Hillary right away. It, he, I don't know if he necessarily picked up on exactly what it was, but it took no time at all for Jack to realize that something kind of was going on between those two. He noticed something that it would have uh, taken Lily and Neil a freaking lifetime to see. I mean, Jack picked it up on it in two minutes. It's been months and Lily and Neil haven't picked up on it. <laughs> Jack's gonna get, play a key role in this, I can tell. Uh, so they all sit down to have dinner. Lily um, has gone and she's gone to the club and picked up a pasta salad for dinner. And there's this moment, I wonder if you guys noticed it, <laughs> Devon kind of chastises Lily for the ch for her choice in food. She, he says something like, you, you picked this up at the athletic club, like the athletic club which I own, you picked pasta? Why didn't you pick lobster or something? You had everything to pick from. Why didn't you choose the best? I thought that had to say something about his character or his frame of mind. It doesn't even seem like the same Devon. You know, why? I, I, he was never like that before, but it said something like, why have average when you could have the best? That's where his head is right now. Why have just any girl? when you could have your father's wife, right? Mm, I just, I was so annoyed with him about that. Um, gosh, he's like con uh, just con uh, continually blaming Lily the entire night. Neil is trying to do every single thing by himself. He does not want to be uh, fawned over. He does not want to be assisted. He wants to move on with his life as if it didn't happen. The blinding as if the accident didn't happen. And he insists on dishing his own plate. And he's... <laughs> This is really funny. He's sitting at the head of the table and he's talking and he's got the serving spoon in his hand and he's just blah, blah, blah and with the serving spoon going on like he can see, just being Neil, talking about whatever the heck he was talking about. And he goes to, I, I guess, get some, uh, scoop some pasta out of the uh, plate and uh, imagine if it was lobster. How's a blind man going to eat a lobster if he can't even dish out some pasta salad. So he goes to dish it out and he accidentally knocks the whole bowl of pasta onto the floor. It's this m moment where everybody's like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, and everybody's feeling bad. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a scene of ridiculousness. All I could think was, ooh, that pesto is going to stain your carpet. Good thing you have that backup house that you refused to sell. The Catherine Chancellor one-year anniversary since her passing memorial service. I get the feeling that there are a lot of mixed reactions to this. I did enjoy the service, and it's not as much because I think YNR did a phenomenal job. I think I'm just ready to gnaw on any Catherine Chancellor bone that YNR throws me. I love Catherine. I miss 
Catherine uh, seeing her face, thinking about her, her characteristics, just the way she carried herself, the, uh, her, her personality traits. Uh, it's so, it's such a joy to me. It, 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 it just, I love remembering her. So uh, for me, I, I did enjoy it. Um, the episodes open up with Jill and Nikki both separately reading their final letters from Catherine, um, well, actually, not their final, final letters, but uh, the, the, their, their first round of final letter, letters, um, and they're both reflecting on one year since Catherine's passing. Jill's thinking about everything that she's been through with the music box with Colin. Nikki is thinking about how Catherine set her on this journey to find Dylan, uh, and unfortunately it did kind of open up a Pandora's box. She got her son, but she also ended up having to relive uh, that horrible experience with Ian Ward, and it did bring him back into their lives, although unintentionally. So there's a lot of, a, a lot that's happened in the past year, and Jill and Nikki are reflecting on that. Uh, at the house, the, the Chancellor Mansion, Esther is there. They're all preparing for this memorial service. And Murphy shows up. Yay! You know I was happy to see Murphy. I love that man. He looked very different, though. He was looking very dapper. Uh, he, he was rocking the beard and bow tie. It was like Professor Murphy. <laughs> It was no longer the plaid shirt-wearing, fishing pole totin' Murphy. It was Professor Murphy. Very, very different. Uh, just even, like, totally different vibe. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why, but it seemed his cadence, his voice seemed a little different to me. Uh, he was sort of an innocent, simple man, and there was something about him that seemed a little bit different now. I don't know why, but Murphy reveals that he received a posthumous letter from Catherine as well, just as everyone else did, uh, regarding this memorial service, and he has some things in store. He's 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 the director, sort of, 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 of the service, and um, there are some things Catherine specifically wanted. Now, the I was surprised. The memorial service did end up taking place at Chancellor Park. Uh, everyone um, kind of is going to gather there. Michael and Lauren were the first to arrive uh, to the, the soiree at the park. It's been decorated with some seating and, of course, some flowers and these huge pictures of Catherine and these, these big, like, clunky picture frames. Weiner has got to have the corner market on those huge, like, heavy gold picture frames that they only put up next to somebody's casket. They're only used when somebody dies. There must be a specific section of the prop room <laughs> at YNR where they keep these heavy picture frames for the huge pictures that they put up at memorial services. <laughs> but it was nice seeing the picture of Catherine. I will admit, I have not seen her face. It was it, Seeing the picture, for me, was a stark moment because it's been a while since I saw her face. In a 20-year run for me of seeing her face all of the time. So it really teared me up just looking at her again. And even as other guests started to arrive, Kevin's there, Esther's there, and they start talking about her and even hearing Kevin and Esther refer to her as Mrs. C. 
that uh, that just got to me. <laughs> I haven't heard anybody say Mrs. C in a while, and it, it was really wonderful. There were some surprise guests. Nina makes an appearance. I thought she looked lovely. I don't know if maybe she's lost some weight or something. She just looked really good, and I liked that she was kind of giving Paul a little bit of hell. Like, hey, I heard you got this child with Nikki. Uh, I thought you, you know, you better be careful because you left me to be with Christine. Kept calling her Cricket. You left me to be with Cricket, so you better stay with Cricket. So that's what her, that's what she wanted for Paul. I like, I like Nina. I want Nina full time. I wish that was possible. Now, Neil shows up. And there was this really tense moment where Jill makes an ass of herself, which is not surprising because Jill is really good at making an ass of herself. Neil shows up with his new wife, Hillary, and I don't know why Jill dislikes Hillary so much, but Jill started making a remark about Neil's quickie wedding to this girl, and uh, Neil comes back like, you know, you how could you don't you know don't start this today Jill he said something like you know come he came back at Jill and he, now Neil's there wearing sunglasses because he's blind and nobody knows that and Jill says something horrible to him like take off your glasses if you're gonna insult me and of course Neil flips out and is the, the you know I can't see it's the, it's more of the the dramatic soap opera revelation it's just been that so much over the past couple of weeks the dramatic revolution revelations are are intense and Neil has to tell everyone that he's blind he has to tell the story and of course Victor swoops in and says oh I will fly in the I will fly on the finest doctors from anywhere in the world. That's any time there's any kind of medical thing. <laughs> Victor offers to fly in the finest doctors. Okay, old boy, I will fly in the finest doctors for you from anywhere in the world. The specialists, any specialist you need. <laughs> I will fly it in for you. <laughs> I don't know why, but that made me laugh. Um, so it was very, uh, very awkward for Neil. Nikki, uh, 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 she's been rereading her letter to Catherine. She's still at home. And I believe it was after reading that letter that she took her first drink. In fact, I think she took two drinks. Um, it's She's thinking about Ian Ward. She's thinking about everything with Dylan. She's just thinking about her life. And the woman goes over to the... For an, you know, for the fact that she's an alcoholic, they do keep a tray of alcohol handy at home and in the office. You'd think maybe somebody, you'd think maybe Victor could be a little more sensitive to that. I mean, if you were a drug addict and then there was just trays of drugs all over the place, it would be difficult to resist, right? So why is it any different? But she can't. She has, she has to give in to temptation and then she goes to the service. She thinks... Popping a breath mint is going to help her hide the fact that she's tossed at Catherine's memorial service. Ugh, it was really sad to see. I just kept thinking, what would Catherine think of you right now, Nikki? Ugh. So the ceremony begins, and Murphy begins to read a letter written by Catherine herself to the group. Catherine wanted this party. And she wanted these specific people to be gathered, and she also had the foresight of writing a letter to be addressed to them, which Murphy begins to read, and in the letter, Catherine explains why she wrote the other letters. She loves to write letters. <laughs> oh, 
just saying, you know, she's she just wants to, you know, she wants to still, she cares about these people and she wants them to be okay. And she comes up with this, uh, a few requests uh, that she wants for the group to do. And actually, Murphy started to crack up as he was reading the letter and he couldn't finish. Oh, that made me so fit. He's reading the, he was being so strong because Murphy was so strong during all of this. Like, you know what? I'm just, I'm trying to live my life and Catherine's influenced me and she's done so much and I'm just trying to you know do her justice by by enjoying life and everything she did for me and then he starts reading the letter and he he cracks up he turns around and begins to cry ah that killed me michael had to come up and finish reading the letter for him and michael i love the way michael pretended he's he he, <laughs> he kind of pretended to stumble over the letter that's <laughs> a, that's a, a a mark of a good actor i think because he could have just stood up there and read the letter perfectly, but uh, Christian LeBlanc made the choice to kind of stumble over some of the words. I thought that was uh, a nice touch. There is an activity that Catherine wants you to do. She has provided pen and paper, and she would like <laughs> for you all to write something down on this paper. Write your, your innermost thoughts. I would write what's, what's on your mind. This is an activity that I had to do when I was at my bucket list. You're going to uh, write everything down and write down everything and then we're going to put it in a bowl and burn it and it's going to be healing. It was, it was, I, I was surprised. This part, I couldn't believe it was kind of happening. It felt like craft time at Sunday school or something, but, um, or, or like when you go off on a business retreat or, you know, like those, if you've ever been at a business meeting where they make you do an activity like that, it felt a little like that, like four but whatever. I did enjoy it. Um, one by one, everybody sits down and writes on their paper just exactly what's on their mind. And it was kind of like this final dialogue between the individual character and the omniscient Catherine Chancellor. And some of them were really good and enjoyable. I liked Nikki's. I liked Collins a lot. Jill refused to participate, of course, as if that's not surprising. Uh, and one by one, they all come and put their papers into this bowl. And as Neil <laughs> walks up to put his paper in the bowl, the Claude knocks it over. It was, I actually had to watch that twice because it was so dorky. I mean, I can't, I think, I think Murphy, Murphy was holding the bowl and he, no, maybe it was Esther. Crap, I can't remember who was holding the bowl now, but it wasn't being held very, very well. I mean, it didn't even take much forks for Neil to knock over the bowl. Like, this, this is what Neil's blindness has done. He just knocks over bowls. <laughs> to me. So he knocks it, like everyone's papers go spilling out onto the floor. Jack jumps up to try to help pick them up and he sees Victor's note. And Victor uh, has uh, signed it on the front like it's an envelope, like to Catherine, love Victor. I'm surprised he didn't put a stamp on it. He's just, it was obvious it was from, who would do, why would he do that? Why did he fold it up and write her, write, it just made it obvious that it was Victor's. So Jack has this moment of seeing What's the innermost thoughts in Victor Newman's mind? It's like this great moment of finding out, like, your enemy's playbook. And Jack, it was wonderful. Like, it, 
Victor has just written on the paper about how Catherine wouldn't approve of everything that he's doing regarding Phyllis, and oh, it's just such a great moment. Jack sees the paper, picks it up, puts it in his pocket, and the look on his face was like a little boy hoping to get caught. Just that look on his face was so priceless, and then he thinks twice about it, and reluctantly puts it back in the bowl. He has this moment of conscience and says, Ugh, only for you, Catherine. So he was so close to finding out what, or at least getting a clue about what Victor's been up to regarding his ex-fiance. And uh, he, he got his conscience got the better of him. But that was like probably one of my, one of my favorite moments from the memorial service. Uh, they, they, uh, gather all everything's in the bowl everyone's uh, paper is in the bowl and Catherine has requested that Nikki lights the fire and of, uh, of course Jill thinks this is just very disrespectful to her oh of course Nikki's the one that deserves to light the fire but I thought that it was very ceremonial uh, because here uh, this the flame starts to grow and the papers start to smolder and it's just each person watching their worries and fears and hopes and everything just go up in smoke. And I thought it was um, kind of appropriate that, that Nikki was the one to, to light the fire. I think she's struggling at this point more than any of them. Then finally, Catherine decides uh, that she, she wants a party. She wants this to be a party. They've had their ceremony, and now Murphy puts on a little jiggity dance music. <laughs> and uh, Catherine wants them all to cap off the memorial service with some dancing. And, ugh, of course, Neil is blind, so he can't dance with his wife. Oh, oh, I want my, my wife to be happy, and since I can't dance, oh, I'm going to try to do everything else myself. <laughs> if there's a bowl, I'm going to try to put something in it or take something out of it. But dancing, <laughs> moving slightly from left to right, that I can't do. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask my strong, strapping, young, similarly aged son to dance with my beautiful, hot, new wife. <laughs> my eyes cannot roll back in my head far enough. It, my head would just pop off. That moment was so ridiculous. Ugh. Um, Neil or N Neil's sitting there with Jack, uh, and uh, Hillary and Devon are dancing a little too close, a little too intimately. I mean, what are they thinking? Just because Neil can't see doesn't mean everybody else at the service is blind as well. I mean, they're embracing and just looking into each other's eyes, and it's quite clear that something's going on, and stupid Neil is sitting there in the front row with Jack saying, Ah, oh, ah, oh, Jack, ah, oh, tell me, how's my, how's my wife look out there? Oh, is she beautiful? Jack takes one look at Devon and Hillary and sees what everyone else, anyone looking at them, could see that something's going on. Jack knows something's going on and just re responds to Neil like, uh, yeah, she, she looks beautiful out there. <laughs> it was so awkward and so schmaltzy. Again, this storyline. Christoph St. John is doing such a good job. 
he really is a good actor, but this storyline, it, it, it's... It, it, this storyline is the reason why people say daytime is dumb. This is the exact reason why people are like, ugh, who would even watch that? It's stupid. How can, how can you get into something so far-fetched? I mean, I believe the Ian Ward kidnapping Mariah and putting her in a wedding dress more than I believe this ridiculous crap with... With that Neil wouldn't know something's going on with Hillary and that he's blind and blah, blah. It's so over. It's just too heavy. It's too heavy-handed, YNR. You gotta pull it back. It's not believable. It's not compelling. And it makes us look bad, I think. I, that's just me. I think it makes us look bad. Nikki, instead of dancing and having a good time, runs off. Uh, well, I, who was it? I think... Somebody, or Victor uh, and uh, somebody else tried to talk to Nikki and ask her how she was doing. And she flips out and she's like, I don't want to talk about anything. She's obviously drunk and slurring her speech. She runs off into a corner and bumps into Stitch. And there's a confrontation between Nikki and Stitch that is just not nice. Nikki, she's obviously off her rocker. Stitch is concerned about her. He was at one point her doctor and he says something like, are you, you know, are you okay, Nikki? So, and she's just lashing out at him and saying, you know, what, whoa, whoa, what do you care? You're a murderer. She calls him a murderer and is like, oh, is that, who are you, what's your name, Dr. Rayburn? Is that your name? Whatever. And uh, I think Victor comes up and there's a, a moment of, uh, is Stitch going to kind of figure out that Nikki is drunk and is he gonna tell Victor? Stitch says something like, it's, you know, I think something's going on with you, but I don't think it's your MS. I don't know if he 100% knew what it was. Uh, you probably, you probably have to be an idiot not to know, <laughs> but he doesn't rat her out. Nikki goes home and, uh, I guess she takes another drink. She's she's really I, there was a, a a brief moment that I appreciated. Uh, even though I don't love Nikki's alcoholism, uh, there's this moment where she goes to the tray of liquor in the living room at the ranch, and uh, uh, there's glasses. And I don't know if it was from the drink she took previously. Yeah, she goes and she actually runs her fingers around the corner of the glass to make sure that the lipstick marks. Are off of it, and I thought, well, that's a genius little m moment there. That's that's good directing, you know. She she really is covering her tracks, making sure no one knows what she just did. Her her dirty little secret. So I thought that was um, that was. That was good for, um, for 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 Nikki. It was at least that was a compelling moment for me. Jill has been a real grump this entire time. She doesn't want to participate in any of the reindeer games. She clearly still has that adversarial uh, relationship with Catherine, even from beyond the grave. Jill does, though, have a moment, after most of the people have left, where she realizes that Catherine's mission for her wasn't a waste. After all, she got what she needed uh, which was love and uh, and maybe a little bit of self-love in there too and uh, Jill realizes that the the mission Catherine sent her on was successful and she doesn't need the music box anymore so Jill ceremoniously takes the uh, the music box and lays it up kind of on the altar at Chancellor Park and walks away from it, and no sooner, I think, than Jill turns her back. Uh, the music box is there one second. We see a, sh a shot of it, and then a 
shadowy figure comes by and it just disappears into the mist. Not even one day later, Jill realizes she shouldn't have given away that box. I mean, it's like the next morning, Jill goes back to the Chancellor Park to try to get her music box back, and it's not there. I I don't know. I thought it was a ghost. I thought it was Catherine's ghost that took the box, but now I'm not so sure. Uh, while she and Colin are there, Jill overhears Michael talking on his cell phone in the park, and he's saying something about, oh, Lauren will never suspect. We're going to be together forever. And it sounds really suspicious, but of course, we, the audience, know <laughs> that um, it's, it's, it's not what Jill thinks. Jill totally assumes that, oh, He's having an affair because Lauren has confided in Jill that uh, she and Michael have been having trouble connecting and uh, Jill wonders why. And then all of a sudden she hears Michael saying this on his cell phone and she assumes that the real answer is because he's having an affair. So Jill follows him um, to the athletic club like like Michael's going to have an affair in the most public place possible. He would go to like the GC Motor Arms Hotel. He's not going to go to the athletic club with some floozy. <laughs> Jill, she is really, really, she's the butt of the joke. I kind of, I like it. I, I like that Jill's outrageous and that she's um, presumptuous. All of these are qualities that I, that I probably wouldn't necessarily like in a sister, but I like that that Jill's got that personality. As this is happening, Avery is dragging Dylan to the club as well. And she's telling them, oh, I've got some awesome secret for you. And Avery and Dylan show up just as Jill has found Lauren at the athletic club uh, and is telling Lauren, oh, I'm sorry to tell you this, this but Michael's having an affair. I overheard him on his phone. That's definitely what's causing your problems. Lauren doesn't believe it. She's like, what are you talking about? That's not possible. Michael's meeting me here. He was talking to me. Uh, you're out of your mind. Uh, Avery and Dylan show up behind and uh, Jill accuses Avery of being the person that Michael's having the affair with. Avery's like, well, yeah, I'm here to meet Michael. I'm kind of waiting for him. And Jill calls her a bleach blonde succubus. <laughs> this is the bleach blonde succubus Michael's having an affair with. Please, Avery. <laughs> Uh, not exactly what, not exactly hitting that nail on the head, Jill. I think we kind of predicted this. Michael shows up. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Lauren has to say, uh, Jill thinks you're having an affair. And there's this really awkward moment where Michael's like, I'm not having affair, an affair. Uh, Avery and I are here to announce to everyone that we're becoming law partners. I think we as the audience kind of saw this coming last week. I don't know if it's going to end up relieving the tension in Michael and Lauren's marriage. I hope so. I'd like to believe that that's going to help them uh, make their relationship stronger than ever. It also makes me wonder if we're pairing up for a triangle or a possible affair between Avery and Michael. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I like my more, my Lauren and my Michael. We'll have to see. Meanwhile, uh, Lauren... <laughs> 
rips Jill a new one for what she just did. She's interrupted this happy surprise Michael was gonna have for his family, and she's made this wild accusation, and Lauren makes the point to Jill that, you know, maybe you're paranoid about my relationship with my husband because you don't trust in your relationship with Colin. And something about that rings true with Jill, and she goes back to the mansion with Colin, and she realizes that she needs to trust in love the way that Catherine wanted her to. And just as Jill's looking at that sketch of Catherine in the living room, uh, she, we, we as the audience see a shot of that music box sitting on someone's desk. So someone swiped it, and it wasn't Catherine's ghost. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't know who it is. Immediately, like, anytime there's any kind of desk or mystery misembodied, disembodied hand, I think, is it Adam? Maybe Adam's got the music box? <laughs> I'm not sure. The only other thing I could think is maybe it is connected to Colin and his mob friend. I mean, the mob is really breathing down Colin's neck about their payment and they want to get in at Fenmore's to use the company as like a money laundering thing. I don't know if maybe one of Colin's mob connections has realized that the music box is actually uh, valuable monetarily and maybe they've been trying to get it. Maybe they swiped it. I don't know. What did you guys think about the mystery of the music box? Because I guess I thought it was gone when it got swiped away. I thought, oh, well, that's it. That's the end of the music box, and then here we are a, a day later, and it's still there. So I don't know. Um, I do want to mention, though, at the very end of that episode, Avery gets a phone call from her ex-husband. And I completely forgot that Joe had has been cast. So he's going to be coming onto the scene I worry about what that means for Avery and Dylan. I mean, Avery and Dylan are having troubles anyway. They were having trouble last week, disagreeing over Austin's trial, and then this week it just seems like they're having a hard time connecting right at the same time as Michael and Lauren are having a hard time connecting. I'm wondering if, indeed, this could be the death nail for Avery and Dylan's relationship, uh, and with maybe just the slightest tiniest seed of mistrust being planted regarding an affair uh, of Michael's. I wonder if it's something that could bring Avery and Michael together and potentially have them begin an affair. I just want to mention briefly that Gloria made an appearance on the show this week, which I loved. <laughs> uh, she is always fun. She's always fresh. I always enjoy seeing her. She shows up at the police station and she starts to call Kevin out on his behavior. Kevin has been being weird. He's being rebellious. Every time he has a conversation with Michael and Lauren, they're trying to bring him back into reality, bring him back into a calm place. And Kevin's got his motorcycle. He wants to get out of town. He just wants to be bad. He's, he's, he's reversed over to being bad Kevin, which I love so much more. But he's, he's just all about taking chances, taking life by the horns. And he's saying this to Gloria. And Gloria has a way of calling him out. Uh, in a way that Michael and Lauren don't. She just, like, uh, she's not afraid to question him and pressure him, and she ends up taking a look at Kevin's computer screen, 
and sees that he what he's been writing. We saw a little piece of this a couple weeks ago where he's been writing something, and uh, she takes a look at the screen, and it appears that he's writing some kind of like true crime novel, I or something like it was Grody. He was talking about a victim or a body or something that had, I don't know, some kind of crime. It was some kind of detailed, gross, murderous crime. And I don't know what the heck this is supposed to mean. What does this mean for Kevin? And the only thing I was kind of wondering is, did you guys see, I don't know if everybody caught this, but it was the end of maybe Wednesday's episode or Thursday's episode. Instead of doing the next on YNR, there was the Get Ready for Shamar Moore promo for September 10th and 11th. More, we're gonna get more. It's been a decade since we've seen Shamar Moore. Now he's gonna be back on the set of YNR and he's walking through the trailers. He's back on the set and oh yeah, baby, I'm the man and I'm gonna totally rock your faces off. <laughs> I know that got some people excited, Anna. I'm looking at you. I know there are a lot of people who are really, really jazzed about Shamar Moore, and I thought he looked good in the promo. I was nervous because I haven't really seen him in a while, but uh, he looked really good. It's only going to be for two days, unfortunately, but I'm kind of, in my head, it's clicking with me that the show Shamar Moore is on now is Criminal Minds, and it's kind of true crime solving murders, kind of stuff like that, I think. Uh, like CSI sort of, I think, stuff. And I don't know how or where they're going to say the character of Malcolm has been. The last time we saw Malcolm, he just was kind of leaving town after the whole Sophia Neal thing blew up. But I'm wondering if YNR is going to somehow connect Shamar Moore as a cop now and uh, sort of maybe lay the groundwork for some more crossovers between the two CBS shows. I, I just keep thinking, okay, well, Kevin's writing this sort of true crime novel. Shamar Moore is on that kind of show. Is there any way that that's where the crossover is going to happen? Could Kevin's novel be the opening for Shamar Moore? While the coma doctor gives Phyllis the magic coma antidote this week. <laughs> oh, the doctor's just sitting there talking to her, telling her to come back. There's so many people that would like to see you open your eyes. And the doctor's on the phone with Victor, giving him regular updates, telling him the treatment has begun. And just as uh, all of this is going on, Jack has decided to tell Summer that he want, that he's asked Kelly to move in with him, and they're trying to have this sort of nice family dinner at Summer's apartment, her lush new apartment, and Jack tells Summer uh, the news, and Summer's reaction was a little surprising. Jack, I think, expected her maybe to blow up, but she really accepted it. She said... I know that, you know, you accepted my criminal husband. <laughs> so I'm going to accept your relationship with Kelly. But that doesn't stop it from hurting her. She still has a, a sense of wanting her parents to be together. But moreover, Summer also interprets Jack moving on with Kelly as Jack losing faith that Phyllis will ever wake up. 
Don't be so sure though. <laughs> Don't be so sure. <laughs> we have a miracle coma cure. Uh, flash uh, back to the hospital where Victor is sitting by Phyllis's bedside and <laughs> now that she's been given the antidote, Victor's just sitting there trying to talk to her. He says, Phyllis, this is Victor Newman. <laughs> As if she didn't know who that is. All you have to say is, Phyllis. I mean, it, it's so, I love that scene. This is Victor Newman. You're not writing a letter. <laughs> You're not making a phone call. This is Victor Newman. <laughs> There's something important that I need to talk to you about. <laughs> and it's all about him. It's, he did try to, I think, um, he tried to, to cushion it a little bit, but he's basically saying, there's something important I need to talk to you about, so I need you to wake up out of this coma now. This is Victor Newman. I command you to wake up out of your coma. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't try laying on hands. But it was so annoying just saying, okay, I need you to come out of this coma because there's something I need to talk to you about. And if not, I probably would have just let you lie here in this coma indefinitely. I wouldn't have bothered trying to find this miracle treatment. But see, the thing is, I need something from you. That's so typical, Victor. He says, are you gonna open your eyes? How about now? No, now. Why don't you open your eyes now? <laughs> and just as he turns, turns away thinking it's hopeless, we see a single shot of Phyllis's face and her eyes pop open. Victoria are getting along famously this week. She's in the hospital after that scare. Billy comes by and he's being very supportive of her, very cute. Victoria is kind of tired of, of laying there in the hospital. She feels fine. She wants to go home, but they're insisting that she stays. And Billy decides to break her out of the hospital. It was kind of cute. He comes in with a wheelchair and he's dressed as a orderly and she gets in the chair he gives her a big book to hide her belly and he breaks her out of the hospital <laughs> it was really cute i i don't know i thought that the baby was going to end up being stitches but now i wonder if it's going to be billy's and if billy and victoria are going to get back together ultimately and i my main reason for thinking this is well i don't know i guess it would be more complex if stitch was the was the father and maybe that's what we're looking for maybe that's what weiner's going for but we're at the athletic club. Abby is there. She runs into Stitch. They've had a notorious negative uh, interaction. Uh, Abby's been very hard on Stitch because she wants Billy, uh, her brother, to end up with Victoria. She uh, doesn't appreciate Stitch's involvement in their lives. And she is talking to him as Tyler walks by. And Abby has been... W w reeling her relationship with Tyler since it broke up. She still wants him back. She can't stop thinking about him. Tyler walks by. She's with Stitch. The most logical thing in her mind to do is to just kiss Stitch to try to make Tyler jealous. And Tyler, it apparently worked. Um, after Tyler walks by, Stitch is like, don't ever do that again, okay? Don't ever do that again. There, it was, she, she thinks she's just the world's greatest kisser and he should be completely flattered, but I, he didn't appreciate it. Abby goes over to Tyler and it, it just seemed like their relationship is over. She said, you know, I'm going to admit. I don't know why. She, she kissed Stitch to make Tyler jealous and then went to Tyler immediately and admitted that that's what she did. Oh, I only kissed him because to, I wanted to make you jealous. Well, that's, why'd you reveal your secret, dummy? <laughs>
sorry. Um, so the way that Abby and Tyler left it was we're just not, we're, unfortunately we can't be together and we really can't be friends. So I don't, we haven't seen much of Tyler lately. I don't know if he's going to con be continuing on the show or not, but uh, it seems like their relationship is a no-go. And I'm kind of wondering if that kiss with Stitch isn't going to end up leading somewhere. I wonder if the this hearts and butterfly sisterly feeling between Victoria and Abby isn't going to last. I wonder if we're going to find ourselves with, I don't know, maybe Stitch being the father of Victoria's baby while she's in a relationship with Billy and Stitch is in a relationship with Abby? Hey, let's read some comments. Um, Voicemail from Gary this week saying he did not like Catherine's memorial being at Chancellor Park. He says, why would they not have it in her own home or outside like it was a 4th of July barbecue? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't think of that. I think when I when we initially saw the memorial, that the memorial service was happening today, Jill and Esther and Mur Murphy were all gathered at the house, and I kind of thought that they'd do it indoors. I am sure Wyanart just didn't want to, like, build the backyard set for the Chancellor Mansion when they already have the Chancellor Park set, but um, Gary made a good point of, like, the whole Chancellor Park thing happened after uh, Catherine had already passed away, so it was... They were holding the memorial service at a place that Catherine wasn't necessarily really connected to in the same way, and I do think that's a good point. Um, Gary also mentioned something that I forgot to talk about, which was that at the end of the letter that Catherine wanted to be read to everyone uh, at the memorial service, Murphy started reading it, Michael finished it, Catherine said something like, see you next year <laughs> at the very end of it, or like, until next year. So is Y&R going to make this a yearly thing? That's I think that's a, a, a good question. I do appreciate that they're not just going to drop it. I think we should have some kind of memorial for Catherine every year. I don't know if this grand gathering is going to be it, and I, I, I think we need to be done with the letters. The idea that Catherine would sit and write... <laughs> letters to be delivered on the anniversary of her death for who knows how many years is completely ridiculous. Uh, the one other thing um, that Stitch, or that Gary mentioned that really stuck with me, uh, he says, it's funny that Nikki, after the memorial service, accused Stitch of being a murderer when she's murdered three people. That was good. <laughs> That's a really good point. And um, so who are the three people that... Nikki have mur has murdered because I think she killed her own father and then I seem to remember that she, I want to say she killed one of her ex-husbands or there was a there was a doctor that she was involved with for a, a period of time in the 90s what the heck was his name like Kevin or Jeff or I can't remember his name but he was a doctor and he had some kind of crazy ex-wife and I don't know if it happened at their wedding or sometime around their wedding or something, but I kind of think Nikki got a gun and killed either the maybe the wife or the the, the ex-wife or the husband. You guys will have to let me know about that one. I, I kind of think somebody Nikki killed somebody at that point. And then of course we have Diane. She te she technically killed Diane. 
Well, she definitely killed Diane, so so it's like, hello, Nikki, throwing some st stones from your glass house. Uh, Connor also called in and commented on Catherine's memorial, and he said, you know, any episode about Catherine should be about Catherine. Connor was saying that he didn't like that it was so focused on the individual characters, um, that it really should be more about Catherine, who she was, her life, a celebration of her life, um, not about, you know, everybody else's drama. Um, Connor also mentioned that he was very disappointed in Nikki showing up drunk at a celebration of her dearest friend's life. Yeah. I know. I don't know when Meredith Baxter's going to come into play. It doesn't seem like Nikki's going to recover anytime soon. I, I get the impression that she's going to be drinking for a while at least, and we know that she's had a drinking buddy cast. So I don't know when that's going to start. Have you guys noticed that like, Victor's never around? I He's been off on several trips <laughs> trying to take care of this whole Phyllis thing, and he's not really around, not really there for Nikki, and I don't think that he should need to babysit his wife, but it, you do get the impression that Nikki doesn't want to bother her family, her kids have enough going on. The person she should really be leaning on is Victor. She no longer has her best friend, Catherine. Victor's the one who she should be leaning on, and he just doesn't seem around as much. So, I don't know. I think we got a, a ways to go <laughs> with Nikki's drinking. Uh, I, I don't think this is rock bottom at all. Her showing up at the uh, at the memorial drunk is probably the least of what we're going to see. I'm afraid to know. Um, on YouTube, Chris Kroom, Christopher Kroom left a comment that says, YNR, quit with the twin storylines. <laughs> Enough already. Uh, it, it is true, the Cassie Mariah twin thing. It, again, it just feels like one of those things where... As a soap watcher, you just sort of accept it, like, okay, we're going to have an evil twin. <laughs> but um, Christopher goes on to list some of the twins that we've seen within the past, uh, I don't know how many years, but uh, Catherine and Marge, of course, Kane and Caleb, Lauren and Sarah Smythe, Phyllis and the Phyllis imposter look-alike, uh, Kane and Lily's twin kids, <laughs> William and Jeffrey Bardwell, now Cassie and Mariah. He's, uh, Chris says, move on YNR from those twin storylines and come up with something new and original. I can see that point. It's That's probably another instance of like twin storylines maybe making soap operas not look so good. Ugh. Um, really, ugh, I got a really good comment from Have My Cake on YouTube. She says, I have to say, I'm assuming it's a she. Sorry if it's not. Um, have my cake. I don't know. Cake I associate with maybe ladies. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I'm curious how Nick and Sharon will handle the secret of Summer's paternity coming out. Because in all of this, in the end, Nick gave Sharon back her daughter. While in a way, Sharon took his away from him. That's a lot to get over. Yikes. Wow. I love that parallel. I had not thought of that. Nick gave Sharon back her daughter, and Sharon took his away. Woo! I know, that's what I'm saying. That's why I think the storyline is good, though. At the end of the day, once we get over the whole twin thing, I think there's a lot of potential for who knows how this is going to affect. I mean, it's not the revelation of Mariah, but then the revelation of Summer. Oh, it's going to be really good, and I, I just, I like it. I do like it. Uh, finally, I got a comment from Bobby Thompson on Facebook that says, Wait a minute. 
Ian couldn't be Mariah's grandfather. He can't have kids. I, I know, I hadn't fully thought of that either because this entire week I was still kind of going, wait a minute, but how can it be? I, I, I got it stuck in my head that Ian was going to end up being Sharon's father. And even like through the whole Mariah wedding thing, I was thinking, ew, but he could be he could be her grandfather. Maybe somebody will come in and stop this before we realize that it's her grandfather. But then you make a good point, Bobby, that he can't have kids. Although, you never know why you're not going to work around that. If they can bust out some twins, <laughs> the long list of twins, they could still still have the possibility of making him Sharon's father, right? Okay, my podcast peeps. That's a wrap for this week. Ugh, I can't hardly believe it. Really, it's been shocking. It's a shocking week. I did not expect what I got, but I like it anyway. It's not good guy storylines, but it's intriguing storylines. I think that the whole Ian thing has just turned out to be phenomenally interesting to me anyway. You guys are going to have to let me know what you think about all of this. There's a couple of different ways that you can feed back to me if you want to. You can always uh, go to my website at yrchat.com and there you can leave text comments. You can also find me on Facebook and Twitter. You can leave a voicemail through the website or you could call me directly at area code 309-588-4569. So whatever way works best for you. I do love hearing from you and um, if uh, you leave me a super awesome comment, I may read it on next week's podcast. How's that sound? I like it. I'm looking forward to next week, <laughs> and uh, I'll be back to talk to you about it. Who knows where we'll be? <laughs> I didn't think we'd be in a storage locker in a wedding dress with a weird marriage. <laughs> so Lord only knows where we'll be next week at this time, but we'll find out, you guys. I love you, and I'll see you then. Bye!